Hello and welcome to this Naval Studies Group podcast, the third of three recorded at a recent seminar in the Fleet Air Arm Museum in Nowra, New South Wales. This group of three episodes examines the operations of the Fleet Air Arm in the Vietnam War, primarily in conjunction with the US Army and also with the Royal Australian Air Force. In this final episode, we hear about life for the families while loved ones were in Vietnam, and we hear about the adjustment process short and long term after the war. To tell us about life for the families here in Australia, we will hear from Mrs Cynthia Ryan, wife of Petty Officer Brenton Buck Ryan, who served in the first HFE in 1967-68. I'm Cynthia Ryan, and most of you would know my husband as Buck Ryan, but I have to apologise. I've never called him Buck, so I will be calling him Brenton. <laughs> so I am sorry. <laughs> We had, we had been married for over four years prior to Brenton's posting to the helicopter flight Vietnam and we were living in married quarters. Brenton was down in Melbourne doing a course and my silly little things that happened to me at that time, I didn't think they were silly but now I, we laugh over them. And the first one was I went to the village store in married quarters one day to, to get something, I can't remember what it was. And I was absolutely taken by all these people kept saying to me, oh, how do you feel? What do you think about it? And I'm saying, I'm all right. You know, I wonder why they kept asking me how I felt and what I thought about what was going to happen. And then one of the girls could tell, tell that I was sort of a little bit dumb over all this. And she said, what do you think about Brenton going to Vietnam? And Muggins, me, said, well, Melbourne's not going to Vietnam. <laughs> so poor old Brenton, when he came home a few weeks later, he got one foot in the door and I just absolutely attacked him over what was going on. Because everybody, it was a very hush-hush thing, but everybody in, in uh, Albatross knew about it, except me. So when Brenton came home, we had to talk about a few things and work out what we were going to do because we were due to be to go out of our, our married quarters home very soon after he left. So we decided I would go back home. And also Brenton was due to pay off soon after he came back from Vietnam. Also, two weeks before uh, he was due to leave, I was informed by the doctor that I was pregnant. So that helped us with our decisions that we that I would go home. So Brenton went off to Vietnam and uh, it all went reasonably well. I had to find a, a place to live. I stayed with a family for quite a while until I had somewhere to go. And then a few, a few months after this, I had the worst letter I ever had to write to Brenton. I had to write and tell him that I had lost the baby. I mean, he was in a terrible place, terrible situations, and I had to just give this extra little bit of bad luck to him, which didn't go down really well, I shouldn't think. In March of 1968, Brenton advised me that I would be, he would be coming home to Australia on R&R in May. So I made arrangements to go to Sydney. All I knew was the date his aircraft would land in Sydney. Not knowing ter a terrible lot, I presumed that he would come home the same way as he went and he would st 
start off with military air aircraft and then finish up on a Qantas plane? No. So I get to Sydney and I ask the receptionist, who was a lovely chap, thank goodness, uh, would he ring the HMAS Penguin, which was where a lot of the communication was supposed to be? Well, I got a sailor answer and he virtually told me that a sailor was spinning me a yarn. And uh, I politely told him, because I was rather cross at this point, that uh, I'd been married to him for four years and I waved him off at the Sydney airport. So ring up, ring down to the, the desk again and I said, could you ring the Army and the Air Force for me? So they got the phone number. No, nobody knew anything about this group. And I'm thinking, oh, and here I am in Sydney. So then I said, oh, maybe perhaps we better ring the American Embassy. So we did. And he rang back and he said, I've got a phone call. Here it is, you know. And thankfully, a lovely American Marine answered the phone and he said, oh, he said, I can't tell you anything about that group, but hold on and I'll go and see what I can find out. And he came back and he said, yes, I know, we know all about that, but we can't give you any information. The only thing I think you can do is go to the airport tomorrow morning, first plane comes in at five, the last one at 11 o'clock, find yourself a good seat and sit and wait. <laughs> Which I, which I did. Every time they'd open the doors and they'd come out and of course the Australians didn't look much different to the Americans in their uniforms. So I'd go walk over to the chain and I'd have a look. No, go back and sit down. After a while, there was two airport policemen over there and they kept looking at me and I kept looking at them. Anyway, one comes over and he says, who are you? What are you doing here? And I said, I'm waiting for my husband. He's coming in on one of the R&R &R planes. Are you married to an American? I said, no. I thought, oh, here we go. I'm married to a, a, an Australian sailor. Oh, yeah. So he come over, so the second man comes over asked virtually the same questions. And I thought, hmm, I think I know what they think I'm doing there, don't they? <laughs> One look at me and they would have known I wasn't. <laughs> anyway, eventually, on the second to last plane, in comes Brenton. So we walk out, arm in arm, and I just gave this man a nice smile and a nice wave, as if to tell him, oh, my husband's arrived. There is such a thing as an existing husband. This episode at this time simply highlight, highlighted that we women that were left behind, we weren't given any reason or anywhere to go. Little did we know at that time, the Rex Hotel had an area where there were people that uh, would help people, the Americans on R&R, &R, which of course most probably could have helped me, but never mind. So that's what we did. The only time in the whole time I, I was in Sydney that 
the Navy got in contact with me was I got a letter, very short, sharp and shiny letter, to say I had to be down at HMAS Encounter at 10 o'clock on this particular day to give a, a I think it was a five-minute Christmas message. That was it. <laughs> when Brenton finally came home from Vietnam and the Navy posted him to HMAS Encounter in theory that he was going to pay off in February, Brenton was unable to settle down like a lot and we were he was on leave and we were driving down this road and all of a sudden he pulled over and I said, what are you doing? And there was a telephone box because there was no such thing as mobiles in those days. And um, he re-enlisted. <laughs> <laughs> he just couldn't go very well. He was having trouble with civilian people because, of, of course, it wasn't a popular war. Uh, we weren't allowed to talk about it because you would be accused of being all sorts of horrible people. People weren't interested in you. Families weren't interested in you. In fact, they were embarrassed to say that, oh, my sister or my sister-in-law was married to a chap who was in Vietnam. It was just a no-no time. So Brenton decided to sign on to complete his 12 years and then to do his 20 years. On the, on the foot, so he went back and I had to wait until a house came up in Mary Quarters and then I went over. On but I didn't quite get there. On the 4th of April in 1969, at 4pm, 44 kilometres from Mildura, Brenton and three other sailors were involved in a car accident. Brenton spent 12 years in the hospital in the paraplegic unit and they said he most probably wouldn't walk but he's here at the back and he's done all sorts of things and also that we would never have any children. So he, then he spent 10 months in rehabilitation at Encounter before they would allow him to travel back to Albatross. Over the next couple of years and many trips to HMAS Penguin, the Navy discharged Brenton was coming up because he was below naval physical standards. Brenton could not get any information about this medical condition, so applied to sign on. Well... At 2pm on Thursday, the 4th, here we go, another 4th of February 1971, he was advised that at 12 noon the next Friday, the next day, he was to clear HMAS Albatross to do, to this day, I don't think and he doesn't think, that he had completed his discharge routine. <laughs> Luckily, a friend, Chief Petty Officer Kevin Rolfe, mentioned seeing an advert for a... A technician at Hawker de Havilland's in Adelaide. So on the Saturday morning, we were he well both of us. We went up to Sydney. He had an interview and he got the job, which was very good. So he started at Hawker de Havilland in Adelaide. Technically, Brendan was still in the Navy until the 22nd of February, when then when Hawker de Havilland closed in Adelaide's workshop and could not sit. He could not settle. He had quite a few jobs, including night watchman at Channel 7, which was quite funny. In 1974, using a referee, an ex-Navy person, Dick Wilkins, chief onyx, uh, uh, avionics, he had created a vacancy by leaving the Pipelines Authority of South Australia and Brenton applied and got that job. 
As part of his work for comms, he, was regular, he regularly drove from Adelaide to Moomba in, in far, more, far north South Australia and mostly on bush roads, spent nights out in the bush. They didn't have accommodation in the beginning and he, was in, he had to often climb a 250-foot-plus transmission uh, TAS, which, of course, made the navies think that he wasn't medically fit, sort of not quite there. Our son Howard was born during Brenton's employment in, in the PASA. Life still had a few ups and downs with sudden, unexplained, ang angry outbursts, which was not until... Downs outnumbered the ups, and after threats, Brenton agreed to seek help. From that time on, we have enjoyed our life together, and as long as Brenton continues to take his heart and his anti-divorce pills, <laughs> which the doctor even says, do you need a new script for your anti-divorce pills now? It should continue, or he better hope that he can still remember how to swim. In December, we celebrate our 55th wedding anniversary. We both retired and moved again to poor Punker. Brenton had itchy feet again. We stayed there for nine years. He loved it there, but I wanted to go back to South Australia. So the next move was my move. And so now we are living in a lovely, quiet little town called Port Broughton, South Australia. With only a 1,000 people, it's absolutely gorgeous. And uh, good fishing. Of all the places... On the wall of the local RSL, there is an RANHVFV plaque donated by a member of the Helo flight, Trevor Atkinson, who is here today with his wife, Sandy. We were aware that Lieutenant Commander Rorsheen was originally from Port Pirie, 50 kilometres up the road, and we have found out since that John Sandy lives further down the York Peninsula, about 150 kilometres kilometres away. Must be something about Port Broughton. <laughs> and because there were not many people, from, not many men from South Australia went to the 135th. Port Pirie RSL has a wonderful memorial which includes a Huey, Lieutenant Commander Rorsheem's medals plus floor tiles to the lost Hilo flight members as well as to many other service personnel. <coughs> we have been there on a number of occasions I even pinned Brenton's gunner wings on him in front of the Huey. Our son thought that was wonderful. Ted Wyburn also purchased a plaque whilst he was there with us, a fitting if sad memorial of him. If you are ever close to this lovely town of Port... Well, Port Perry's not all that lovely, but to the lovely RSL, it is only 15 kilometres off of the highway and... It is worth going to see. Thank you for listening to me. Thank you very much, Cynthia. Adjusting to normal life after serving in Vietnam was a difficult process for many in the short and long term. Our final speaker, Commander Guy Cooper, served as an operations officer with the 3rd HFV in 1969-70 and considers himself to be one of the lucky ones. I found this quote that's up there while I was just reading through a few things. I have no idea specifically who Brigadier Mick Moon is or was. Uh, I've real, it's a contemporary uh, comment, but I think it's very apt. We all come home with dents in the soul. Um, they always tell you never to volunteer, and yet here I am. 
Um, in asking me if I would be prepared to speak on this topic, Jack said, I had someone lined up to be the final speaker, but he's decided that he's not comfortable with doing it. I can see why. Um, I guess I agreed to do this without really thinking too long and hard before I did so, other than perhaps thinking that I might not actually be the best person to speak on this issue, as my own personal adjustment was not particularly problematic. Having given it, a, given it a lot more thought, I've since realised that it's a very large, complex, challenging and often confrontational topic. Um, the way I decided to approach it, therefore, is to go briefly through my own personal experience and then talk about some of the many aspects that have popped into my head over the past couple of weeks in the hope that they might spark comment and discussion during the Q&A session that follows. I would stress that what follows is just my own personal take on these issues. I'm sure many will have a very different take on it all. It all. Uh, the second one, please. I think the first thing that needs to be said is that I think every single one of the around 200 members of the HFE's four contingents would have found the experience of adjusting to post-Vietnam life different, both professionally and personally. And I imagine this applies equally to the nine squadron pilots and pretty much to all the US. The nine squadron pilots. <laughs> uh, and also to our American uh, friends. Uh, for some, the adjustment would have been relatively quick and easy. Uh, for others, it would have been exceedingly lengthy and difficult. For some, the process is still ongoing and the professional and personal issues are often interrelated. Uh, the essential background context to talking about my own experience is that my time in Vietnam, while demand, demanding, tiring and at times challenging, did not involve much in the way of personally dangerous or, and or traumatic events. Uh, that was certainly not the experience of many as we've heard over the last few days, and probably many have recounted some of those. I think I should also point out that my comments are those of someone who stayed on in the Navy. The experiences of those who left soon after returning from Vietnam, whatever the reason, would be quite different. Um, my own personal experience on returning to Australia, I was given a posting that was broadly consistent with my rank and my general background fleet air arm experience as a staff, of, staff observer to 725. Um, shortly after returning from leave, I managed to swap postings with uh, Patrick Arthur, who's here. Uh, the main reason that while we were on leave in Fiji, he had met his, his now wife and wasn't particularly keen about going back to the Melbourne and disappearing over the horizon. Um, so I went back as a squadron observer on 817 and spent a large part of the next two years embarked in the Melbourne. It was probably one of the best things I ever did, actually, because I think had I gone to 725, I would have found the pace of things very quiet and slow after the preceding couple of years of, of work up and deployment. Um, so I completed that. Once I came back out of 817, I'd kind of re-established myself back in the fleet era, uh, which was where I thought I was going to be for the next multiple years. 
Um, on the personal side of things, I had a lot of fun on the deployments, and I also, during that period, not on the deployments, but I met my, my then and still current wife. Uh, I then stayed on in the Navy for another 20 years with a lot of enjoyable and interesting postings. As some of you here will know, I seem to have managed to get myself on the overseas posting roster quite successfully. Um, so I had no regrets about my time in Vietnam and have always been enormously proud of the time that I spent with the flight and uh, have boundless admiration for those who served in those flights, all four contingents. As I've said, my personal adjustment was not particularly problematic. For others, that was not the case. What follows is based on some of the things I've either observed and or talked about with others from various contingents. I've arbitrarily looked at them under the headings of professional and personal issues, but they're quite often interrelated. Next one. Um, for some like me, adjusting to life in peacetime fleet arm wasn't that big a problem. We basically went back to doing what uh, we'd been doing before and in some cases managed to secure uh, much sought-after postings such as fixed-wing conversions, exchange postings, etc., instructors' courses. Uh, for many, particularly the more junior members of the flight, the adjustment would have been extraordinarily difficult, principally because the RAN in general, this is my personal view, RN in general and Fleet Air in particular seem both unable and unwilling to recognise or take account of the experience that had been gained in Vietnam or the stress that the people had been under. Um, little value seemed to be placed on the fact that a junior pilot who'd flown a thousand hours in combat and had controlled complex combat operations involving large numbers of helicopters, air assets, troops on the ground or who'd commanded helicopter platoons that were the same size as an RAN squadron. Uh, he hadn't completed an OFS, therefore he wasn't a real fleet air arm pilot. Um, during their OFS, they were in some cases, in quite a few cases, treated as though they were boggy pilots straight out of, out of uh, pilot's course, with little regard for either their experience or the enormous stress that they had been under and having had no real break on return to Australia. No wonder some decided their future was elsewhere. Uh, the same applied to the junior maintainers. The fact that a junior leading airman had been in charge of the flight line servicing and maintenance for a multi-squadron size helicopter unit, or had been carrying out and signing off frequent major maintenance activities, seemed to carry little weight on return. They were often told that their experience was irrelevant, that they needed to get back to doing things the fleet air arm way. Um, for some of our non-aircrew category sailors who'd flown hundreds of hours as gunners and crew chiefs, how did they adjust to coming back to non-flying duties? How did they adjust the fact that there was no service recognition of their flying role until last year, this year, basically, when they got gunners' wings? Or even if they had recognition uh, in the form, in some cases, of mentioned in dispatches flying as gunners or commendations, how did they adjust to having no avenue open to them to continue flying? How does the cook who came to the HFV from a totally non-fleet air arm background, posted straight from general service, who flew regularly as a door gunner, adjust to having to go back to general service with no further connection to the fleet air arm? 
Okay, number five, please, Jack. Um, it's really hard to know where to start in relation to the personal issues associated with adjusting to life after Vietnam. Um, I don't think thin-skinned, unimaginative people like me who didn't have many hairy moments there had or have any significant personal issues arising from serving in the HFV. Many others, however, were involved in or witnessed events there that affected their physical and mental health and changed their and their families' lives permanently. There is a significant number of four former HFV members who have physical disabilities and or PTSD issues that have arisen as a result of their service. I have no idea how the numbers compare uh, statistically to those of other Vietnam War units and it's, it's largely irrelevant. The fact is that what happened to them has resulted in them having reduced career opportunities, physical restrictions on their lifestyle, strains on relationships, alcohol issues, etc. These aren't unique to the HFV, of course, but I'm sure we all know people amongst our little group who have been affected by them. We also know that we have gathered at far more funerals than we would have liked for our HFV mates. In some cases, we know for certain that these have a direct connection to their service with the flight. In others, we can only guess. I'm sure we also know fellow HFV members who've chosen to distance themselves from the Vietnam experience altogether, avoid reunions, Anzac Day, etc. And it's really nice to see one or two of those that have turned up to this one. Maybe time does heal. Again, that's not unique to the HFV, but something that is still part of ongoing personal adjustment issues for some based on their experiences with the flight. Um, beyond these, these are obviously the more serious aspects of this, but there are a whole load of other things that I think come into this issue of adjusting to peace on a personal level. And they're probably more in the realms of things of causing frustration and annoyance. Um, and these arise from the way in which the HFV as a whole was treated and regarded within the, the fleet air arm and perhaps the Navy more widely. Uh, this perhaps extends even further to the ADF and the defence bureaucracy. In terms of the fleet air arm aspect of this, my personal feeling is that there seemed to be the view that the Vietnam involvement was not really a fleet air arm involvement. It was just something that a bunch of fleet air arm people went off to do and then just came back to the real fleet air arm world. I think this is quite different to how the fleet and the clearance diving world viewed the involvement of the DDGs and, and Vendetta and the divers. I think perhaps had a squadron been deployed and operated as such, perhaps it would have been different. Uh, when the fourth flight returned from Vietnam, the HFV did not disband, it just disappeared. Um, there was no formal recognition by the Fleet Air Arm or the Navy of the value of its service, apart from the award, late, award later of the Vietnam battle on its 723 squadron. Uh, the members of the flights were dispersed amongst a variety of squadrons or in some cases away from the Fleet Air Arm altogether. In our new homes, we often had the feeling that we were a bit of an oddity or that we'd been away on a break or that our new colleagues just didn't want to hear about Vietnam and what we'd been doing there. 
in a sense, what we had been doing in Vietnam had no ongoing relevance to the Fleet Air Arm and its roles and tasks, or for that matter, to the Navy in general, different again from the uh, DDGs and Team 3. Um, some of the other things that just came into my head in terms of frustrations and annoyances, um, the issues of medals, which is fairly topical this week given or recently held Defence Honours and Awards Tribunal hearings. One aspect of this is that the Australian Awards I won't get into because that's being dealt with in a sense, finally. The other aspect is the acceptance and wearing of US and Vietnamese awards. Um, while the HFV has finally been awarded the Vietnamese Cross of Gallantry Unit Citation, some of which we picked up today, it was not the award that we should have been approved to wear. The one that we the one that we should have been approved is the one that was awarded to the 135th, of which we were a fully integrated part. Um, as Winston James, who's not here at the moment, knows all too well, uh, Defence actively worked to stop us getting being allowed to accept and wear that award on the basis, quote, that we were not fully integrated. And that was largely on the basis of minor administrative arrangements written into an MOU relating to the HFE. Not quite sure how much more integrated that we could have got other than something which is should be left behind closed doors. Um, because we're not part of the Australian Task Force in Vietnam, other than in a minor administrative sense, the HFV did not and still does not have any real profile in places such as the Australian War Memorial, organisations such as the RSL, etc. Uh, for instance, the National Maritime Museum in Sydney, where I volunteer, has significant displays covering HMAS Sydney in Korea and Vietnam, the Gulf War, embarked flights, etc. The only reference to the HFV is a very small, and actually it's factually incorrect, uh, plaque about this big. Uh, when fellow volunteers there asked me what I did in Vietnam, they almost invariably assumed that because it was a Navy unit that it was sea-based. I realise that these last few small issues in the grand scheme, of, those small issues in the grand scheme of things, but they all form part of the broad context that surrounds our adjustment to post-Vietnam professional and personal life. Clearly, the bigger issues of dealing with ongoing physical and mental health problems and those of institutional attitudes to those returning from the flight and the effect they had on careers are the more serious. As I said at the beginning, my aim is to spark comment and discussion I hope I've raised a few of the multitude of issues that might affect how we all adjusted to peace and that some of you will feel the urge to relate your own experiences, raise other issues, comment on some that I've raised or even tell me that I've been talking rubbish. I won't feel offended if you do. Uh, to change uh, Mick Moon's quote a little, we all come home with different dents in the soul and as reminded by Cynthia, the souls of our loved ones and friends also get dented along the way. Thank you. Thanks, Guy. That completes the third of our three podcasts on the RAN Fleet Air Arm in the Vietnam War. We hope you found them informative and that they have added to your understanding of the RAN's contribution to the Vietnam War, and especially that of the unique role played by the Fleet Air Arm from 1967 to 1971.